BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. A listener's note, please be aware this episode includes graphic descriptions of traumatic events such as sexual abuse and violence. Please practice self-care before listening. Who gets to choose somebody's life and their fate to, to say, hey, you get to be a citizen just because you're a little bit younger. You get, you know, you're a little bit older, so you don't get to be a citizen. You get kicked out. You know, you go through all the process of being in jail and, you know, being dehumanized, you know, just because you were a little bit older. <laughs> like, that just, that's crazy to me. This is Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media in support of the film Blue Bayou. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos, founder and editor of Diaspora. In this five-part series, we're hearing real stories from men and women who were internationally adopted by Americans and spent their entire lives completely unaware that they were not American citizens themselves until they were sent away. This is a heartbreaking reality that affects more than 35,000 adult adoptees in the United States. And yet, the majority of Americans have no idea this crisis is happening for so many. Their stories deserve to be heard. This is Susan Williams' story, in her own words. I was born here in Korea, 1982. I don't have any, like, good childhood memories here. I, uh, my, my dad, my real dad, biological father, he was very uh, abusive, alcoholic. Um, so I remember just, you know, my real mom always um, not happy, you know. I just don't remember the atmosphere being um, safe or just uh, loving any of that, you know. I just remember like my dad being drunk or my mom getting beat up and then always leaving, you know, on the move here to here. Um, My mom would like leave and then come back, leave and come back, you know, because of my dad and then she'll come back because of me, you know. And then finally when I was six, she left. Uh, she just couldn't do it anymore. But, you know, back then I was just a baby. I remember, like, I was about to turn 12. Um, like, there was a phone call, and it happened to be my real mom, you know, because between 6 and, you know, 12, she was not in my life at all. I didn't see her. I didn't get to talk to her. None of that. So 
she ended up, I guess, working something out with my real dad and the family, and she came to get me. And um, I was still young, you know, I was still very little. So it's like when I first saw her again, I ran. I remember like running, you know, in the middle of Gangnam. There's a YMCA, you know, across the big street, and she was under the tree, you know, waiting for me. And I remember like running. And when I when I finally embraced her for the first time in God knows how many years, it's like I remember her smell. You know, it's like I remember her scent. And you know, it's like you know your mother loved you. I remember. Like, I felt that love. She missed me. She loved me, you know. But that that bond was not strong enough to um, undo all the damage that was done to me in all those years that I've been alive in Korea as a child, you know. Susan's tough upbringing, combined with the challenges of acclimating to a new place, led her to start acting out. We're stationed in California, and uh, of course, I don't speak any English. <laughs> You know, so it was tough to just be pushed into sixth grade because kids are mean. So I really started getting into um, the wrong crowd. You know, I was like dropping out of school, like skipping classes. I was like hardcore when I was acting out, you know, like me and my mom, like my mom and I would just fight and it was just crazy. So when I was 16, I met someone uh, at he was in the Air Force. He had just joined. He was 18 or 16. Um, and my parents were about to go to Germany to be stationed over there. And I was like, I'm not going, you know, like I'm going to get married. So they didn't really like put up a big fight with me. They just let me get married. Like they, you know, consented and they let me get married when I was 16. <laughs> And so, like, <laughs> so they went to Germany, and I ended up staying back at Beale Air Force Base with my husband, my first husband. I got married like two days before I turned 17, 17, yeah. And then I got pregnant like several months after that. And then I had my first daughter. And then, like, when she was about five months, you know, we were fighting the whole time anyway. You know, I'm 16. What do I know about marriage? You know, <laughs> I don't know anything. He's 18, you know. Susan's first marriage ended in divorce, and she took her daughter to live in Germany with her parents. But it wasn't long before she returned to America. I think I was definitely like looking for attention and love in all the wrong places, acceptance. I don't know what else. But um, I left my daughter in Germany with my parents, and I left to go to L.A. I actually came to L.A. I went to L.A., and I actually was staying with my ex-husband's aunt. I'll just go out and just meet people. And I met some Crips, some drug dealers, <laughs> you know? I was, what, 19? And I started moving drugs for them. So I was like their mule. Like, what they would do is they would pack my suitcase and, like, they'll have somebody follow me. But, like, they have people, like, at the luggage department that would just check my bag in, which was filled with drugs or whatever, you know? And so, um, like, I remember going to, like, Louisville and... Cincinnati and a couple different places in Midwest, you know, just moving drugs for these people. And I remember those days, it was crazy because they were like set up shop at like this trap house. Now they call it the trap house, like built house, you know. And here I am, this little Asian girl, like just <laughs> hanging out with these people, you know. And then I remember um, I went back and 
you know, I'm not gonna lie, like I was really dumb. Like I didn't know any better. And I remember like, I had no fear. Like you think back and like, I could have gotten killed. Like something bad could have happened to me, you know? Like, but I didn't, like I had no sense of that. They even made some like fake credit cards, you know, for us to use fake IDs to go with it. You know, there was, it was their like scheme or whatever. And like, we were dumb enough to go to Walmart there and like try to use it and got caught up, you know? And I went to jail. That was the first time I went to jail in Alabama in Birmingham. And I was there for three months. And I remember like calling my mom and dad, you know, and they were in Germany, of course. And they're like always freaking out. Like, what is she doing? <laughs> you know, like all alone in the States, running around, what is she doing? I found out while I was there that my real dad had passed away. And I think that really traumatized me a little bit. Following her first stint in jail and the death of her biological father, Susan's life began to spiral further out of control. I was getting drunk and I tried meth. I think at the time I, I, like I smoked meth once or something. And I remember like just going crazy. Like I packed up all my stuff and I, I remember putting like all these clothes in, in the bag. I just threw it out the window, like 14 story. I just threw it out the window. <laughs> I just did some crazy stuff. At the time, Susan was staying with her then boyfriend and his cousin. My boyfriend. Let me hold his gun. He had a nine millimeter, and he'll let me hold his gun. Probably because if we got caught up, like I'll be the one to get in trouble, <laughs> you know, like on the buses and stuff or whatever and Greyhounds. And I was super paranoid. I'm like my mind is going. Like what are y'all? What y'all's plan for me? You know, like this is kind of scary. Like I don't know what the fuck's going on, you know. And um, one day we were playing a video game. Like we were playing Madden 2000. And I lost, and he was talking shit to me. And something clicked. I don't know what. Like, I felt so trapped. I felt so, like, like I felt like everything that's ever happened to me, like, like hit a head. You know what I mean? Like, it just, like, I remember grabbing the gun, going into the bathroom and looking in the mirror. And uh, I just, I don't know. I came out and I was holding the gun to him and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, I'm like, like I'm tired. Like, I don't, I don't. And he jumped at me and uh, like, we were kind of rust, you know, like fighting. And uh, the gun went off and uh, I shot him in the stomach and he was still kind of fighting me. And somehow he took the clip out of the gun and she came out when she heard the shot and it was like a long hallway to her bedroom and he threw the clip at her and I remember just like going after her to get the clip back and we were fighting and like I took the clip I put it back in she was running out and I remember shooting at her and she ran out and he was slumped over in the hallway. And I shot him, you know, like, I think I shot him one more time, three more times. I took the car keys and I remember she had somehow taken the door key off the hook. Like, I don't even remember what kind of car it was, but it, it had like two keys, you know, for one for the door and one for the ignition. And she had took the door key. So, 
I had to shoot the window out. And I just, I didn't have anything on me. Like all my paperwork, all my stuff, I didn't grab none of that. And uh, it was like my whole life in that bag that was, that was just left there. And uh, I just drove off. I just kept driving. And I remember I was covered in blood. Like, like my whole pair of pants was just soaked in blood. I was going through Memphis downtown. It's like in the middle of the night. And I noticed the white van following me. And I'm like, who's following me? Sure enough, like, I think it was like a marked, you know, police car. They pulled me over. And I remember split second thinking, maybe I'll shoot out with the police. <laughs> you know? I had the gun still, but it only had like one or two bullets on it. And I didn't. I just got out, put my hands behind my back. I remember getting on my knees and put my hands up. You know, I don't remember thinking anything. Like, I don't remember actually sitting there thinking about what's what's going on with my life. What's going to happen from now on. I remember just, I was angry. I was just angry. Well, I was just so angry. Thankfully, both survived the shooting. Susan went to jail in February 2004. Ten months later, in December, she received her sentence. Fifteen years in prison and five years on paper probation after you get out. So from that 15 years, I, would have, I, would, I was uh, to do 85% of that. So it was like right, right at 13 years, like almost to 13 years. I was acting out really bad. Like I would try to fight anybody. I was like, I was the one that was in holding cells, making the most noise, just cussing people out, just acting uh, damn fools. Every like once three months, I would just do something completely stupid, just to go be alone for a while in you know segregation. But while in segregation, a lady would come by every cell, playing Christian music and giving out little pieces of scripture. At the time. Susan really didn't think much of it. She gave me a, a bookmark that said, like, you are the light of the world. You don't light a candle and hide under the bushel. You let it shine. It's the whole house to see. I was acting out. I was trying to, like, feel my way out, you know, of the prison. But I had a decision to make. And after, like, a couple months of seeing how it, it could either go one way or another, I chose to start praying, enrolling in school, taking classes. I started to read my Bible and stuff that I was reading from the Bible started really changing my action. You know, like how I dealt with things, how I looked at things, how I um, saw people or my own actions and how I dealt with just anything. Susan was sentenced to 15 years in prison and five years probation, which she began in March, 2005. But while there, she started working to change her life by going to college online and becoming active within the prison. That summer, I enrolled and I started going to school. And I somewhat became this role model, you know, like I was like the, the model inmate, you know, like um, I did the rodeo, the prison rodeo there when they brought the prison rodeo in Oklahoma to the first time for the women. I actually broke both my wrists and I have a big old scar from, you know, I had three compound fractures from riding the bareback. I was the, the prison gladiator. <laughs> like I was teaching classes, 
like when they had like some interviews to do, they would like choose me. Like so, whenever I got my associates and the, the channel News Nine was doing uh, an interview, they you know did an interview with me and stuff. So they would like kind of pick me to do certain things, and I think that was good for me. I think you learn to just take one day at a time. You know, um, you don't know the future. You know, so I think that's where my belief in God came from to give me the strength and to um, to give me some kind of wisdom to know okay well get you an education stay in line you know don't get in trouble but I did really like it took me a lot to not to get in trouble as far as like fighting somebody or it just took anything little to you know mess up your privileges you know Susan had another reason for wanting to stay on the straight and narrow. My parents finally, with my little brother, came to visit me. I think like 2006 is when they first come see me. And this, you know, this is from Germany that I haven't seen them, you know, like six years. So they finally come to visit me. And my little brother, you know, the whole time thought that I was away at a college or something. And they finally broke it to him the night before he came to see me. Like, uh, your sister's actually in prison. You know, like, he was, what, like, eight, you know? And um, that must have been, like, so kind of just jump out. Like, my brother's 26, 27 now. And we talk a lot. He's in the Air Force now. He's a staff sergeant. You know, he's got a good head on his shoulder. He's a good guy, you know? And uh, we're very close. And um, he told me his side of how he felt, you know, growing up with me being in prison, you know, how that was for him and... It was very eye-opening, but you know, my little poor little brother, he come see me. And I remember that was one of the biggest things that kept me in line is that if I act out and get in trouble, I lose my privileges to see my parents. You know, even though they don't come often, whenever they do come, I would like for them to come to that gate and come. You know, they're my only family. They're the only ones that have ever been there for me. They're the one who sends me money. <laughs> you know, like I want to see that. You know, so that really kept me in line. Like I even had people put their hands on me and I wouldn't fight back because if I fought back, I would get trouble. Another thing that kept me going in prison was that whatever I do is gonna matter when I meet my daughter. You know, the character that I that I kept for myself or, or how I acted and how I um, carried myself is gonna matter when I meet my daughter. You know, um, because I, I, I thought about her and I, beat myself up and say, you know what? Not having my daughter in my life is a bigger punishment than doing this time. You know, it hurt me the most that I couldn't be in my daughter's life. To to hear her voice, to not know uh, what her first words were or not know what she smells like, what not know, you know, what type of cartoon she likes. You know, just any little milestone, little things about her that I'm missing out is what hurts the most. Susan's reformed behavior allowed her to get transferred to a lower risk security area where she got even more opportunities to work alongside other inmates who were dedicated to improving themselves. But what really convinced Susan that she was on the right path was a letter she received while in prison. So sequence, like two years before I got out, the guy who got shot, he wrote me a letter. Like I remember at the mail call seeing his name on the envelope freaking out, right? (laughs) And I read it. And he said, like, it took me a long time, you know, 
to write write this letter to you that I wanted you to let you know that that I forgive you and I hope that whatever I might have done that you forgive me. Um I thought, you know, we were cool, I don't know what happened. But uh, I just want you to want you to know that. <laughs> you know? Um I actually wrote him back and I just, you know, of course thank him. Like, you know, thank you. That's big. That's huge to be forgiven by your victim. Um, no matter how I can justify that, I can't justify why I shot somebody, you know. So that was huge. So that God works in just totally mysterious ways. In 2016, Susan left prison as a changed woman, but she now had something new to worry about: deportation. What makes a home? Is it a place, a feeling, a family? For so many adoptees like Susan, home means so much more. Blue Bayou star Alicia Vikander on what home means to her and her character in the film. I mean, I, I grew up in not the most conventional family myself. I've also had the question a lot throughout my career, like, but what is home? And it's hard because I have so many places I call home. What I've realized, it's not the places it's themselves. It's now become the people that I've met in those places. Those relationships of the chosen family that we talk about, are, that's, that's what has grounded me over these years when I feared that I wasn't going to have any roots. See the Focus Features film, Blue Bayou, written and directed by Justin Chan and starring Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander. Blue Bayou is out now only in theaters. Now we return to Susan's story. While incarcerated, Susan had met a South Korean immigrant who was facing deportation. Susan and her parents looked into her immigration status and discovered that she had missed the cutoff for the 2000 automatic censorship bill by only six months. I remember thinking, okay, well, I might get deported. There's a list of inmates that come out every day for the central control officers in the whole facility of the staff that shows how many inmates are in how many are out for medical, how many are out for court. You know, it's a count, inmate count, right? And then there is a list for who's on ice boat. And my name was never on there. They never flagged me. I was never on that list. So we were like, well, we're not gonna bring it up. We're not gonna say anything. You know, we're just gonna see what happens, you know? It never crossed their mind that I might go to prison, you know? So they didn't think that it was gonna be an issue, me not having my citizenship yet. You know, they figured eventually I'd get it, you know. So that's what it was. <clears throat> they just didn't see a big issue or a big problem in not having Because they didn't know, never thought in their life that I would go to prison. So it was very stressful. Susan's citizenship status made it even more difficult for her to rehabilitate her life after prison. I couldn't get a legit job. I couldn't get my driver's license. I couldn't do anything. Because if anything came up, I couldn't get a new social security card because my green card is not renewed. It's expired. So in order for me to get any of that, I had to have my green card, but I didn't, right? So I was flying under the radar. 
Sure enough, it was only a matter of time before ICE caught up with her, and she was detained once again. So I ended up going to Tulsa County, back to Tulsa County. Now, remind you, it's been, what, 13, 14 years since I've been there, you know, back to Tulsa County. I was held. Um, and I think because I was at peace with myself, no matter how scared I was, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm actually going to Korea from here. <laughs> with deportation seeming inevitable, Susan deported herself back to Korea, where she's done her best to set up a new life. So I got this one little room. My mom's friend was already here. So they kind of all kind of like settled me in, you know, got some stuff for the house. And of course, you know, my mom, when we first came, before I moved to Pyongyang for like four or five days, we were up in Seoul, my mom's family, kind of seeing everybody, getting, you know, like saying, my mom's saying hi to people because it's been several years since she'd been here. Then we came down here and it was time for them to leave. You know, my mom was time for her to leave. <laughs> um, it was, it was daunting. Susan was able to meet other adoptees who helped show her around Korea and get her a job teaching English. Susan recognizes she's in a far better situation than most adoptees that have been deported. But that doesn't mean that things are easy for her. Thank God I'm from Korea. I think Korea has been the better country to be at. I mean, I, mean, I say that because maybe because I have more, a little more resource than other people and I can speak the language and, you know, communicate with people, which is important. And of course, I had that cushion to kind of show me around and, you know, be there having some family members, which that doesn't really mean that much. <laughs> you know, just because you have family here doesn't mean they're going to, like, be there for you. Like, I'm thankful. I'm very grateful, you know. But then I can't help but to think sometimes, like, is this all going to be taken away from me? You know what I mean? Like, it's not as bad as, like, some of the countries that people get deported to, but that doesn't matter. I still cry thinking about if something were to happen to my mom, my dad, I can't be at their funeral. Being out of prison has afforded Susan the opportunity to reconnect with her daughter. My daughter reached out to me and I, she actually got all the letters that I've ever written her. Her and her boyfriend, he, he was like, you need to reach out to her immediately, <laughs> you know? And she did. She actually came to Korea to see me. And we were reunited after 17 years. And she hung out with me. She's such a sweet, laid back, cool fucking girl, you know? <laughs> um, she got this pro going on and doesn't really wear any makeup. Like, she's so pretty, like, so graceful, like, nothing like me, <laughs> you know? And we had a great time. And while in Korea, Susan met her current husband, Daniel. Daniel grew up in the South in Macon, Georgia. In his younger days, he wanted to pursue his interest in fashion and writing, but with college being so expensive, he enlisted in the Air Force, planning to go back to school on the GI Bill after completing his service. Instead, he became a 20-year Air Force veteran. Like Susan, Daniel wanted to better himself. Even though my parents were still together, my mom was basically the person who raised me. Um, down south, the, you know, my dad was kind of like that old sharecropper, you know, black guy. Yeah, didn't finish high school, but got a great job and, and stuck with it. His thing was, as long as I'm putting food on the table, clothes on your back, 
roof over your head, that's being daddy. I ain't got time to take you to football games. I ain't got time to, you know, my dad worked pretty much every other holiday. And, you know, you always tell yourself, when I grow up, I'm not going to be like my dad. And for the 20 years of my military career, I was my dad. Being in the military caused a lot of stress in my prior relationships, um, you know, because, you know, I'm deployed a lot. So uh, out of the 20 years the, of my military career, um, I was deployed a total of six years, eight months, 17 days and some odd change. So after retiring from a 20 year career as a paramedic in the Air Force, he moved to Hawaii. The plan was to finally move to Hawaii, you know, chill on the beach, smoke my cigars, and become a writer. I'm sitting on the beach, bored as hell by, by month four. So I started to go up to uh, the Army hospital and actually, you know, wind up talking to uh, uh, people about PTSD because I had deployed so much. And actually, it gave me a chance to deal with my own PTSD. Daniel decided to take an internship back in San Antonio, Texas as an analyst when a friend suggested that he consider an open position in South Korea. Daniel moved to South Korea in August 2019 and met Susan not long after. I'm over here in Korea, not as an uh, active duty uh, Air Force member, but I'm, I'm retired and I'm in the civilian GS system. I'm over here to get the experience, to, to, to em- embrace the culture, find me some good information to write. My plan was to come out here, do my thing for three years and go back to Hawaii and just, you know, do whatever. I had been here for a couple of months and I had not really gotten out to experience any of Korea. So I decided to drive up uh, to, uh, to to Seoul, but instead of driving up, I said, you know what? I am actually gonna venture out and I'm gonna take the train. So I had a coworker who, who is Korean, kind of like, you know, give me some instructions on how to, you know, catch the train and help me actually get to the train station. So it's like, okay, I, I think I got it from here. And, you know, got out, started to walk around and the further I got it was like I, I kind of like lost my bearings so I'm just walking and then you know the, my pride originally was like ah, I can't find it. I don't want to seem like I'm just you know you know big six foot four black guy walking around so don't know where the hell he's at so uh but then it got worse so then I was like you know okay so I had to swallow my pride and I started asking you know you know trying to you know stop to ask you know locals about you know if they did, if they could at least point me in the direction of young sons. So, you know, a couple of people, you know, kind of brushed me aside. You know, they didn't, they didn't speak English, and so I'm getting a little frustrated. After several minutes spent looking for someone who could help him, Daniel overheard a woman speaking in perfect English. It was Susan. So I kind of stopped her and asked her, you know, if she, you know, was like, oh, you speak English? She's like, yes. And I was like, can you tell me how to get to Yongsan Air Base? And she was like, uh, Yongsan, you mean the army post? And and so she kind of like, you know, helped me out. We walked and stuff. And I mean, you know, she was, you know, she's very attractive. So I was like, you know, I gave her my number. <laughs> we talked on the phone a couple of times after that. Uh, we had tried to, tried to meet several times but kind of like fell through and then finally we actually got a chance to uh to to go on our first date and it was really really cool and you know she showed me some more of korean uh culture so i meet this girl by chance again in a situation where i had no idea where i was at what i was doing and 
we hit it off. I appreciate people being honest about everything. You know, in a relationship, you have to be honest because, you know, everybody, you know, we all have a little bit of baggage. And me, for me being, uh, um, you know, let's face it, me being a black man, multiple marriages, uh, multiple kids, you know, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes people can look, can look negative at you without knowing your story. So and understanding what all you've been through. So um, for her to take that and say, you know what, hey, you got your past, I got my past. That strength and honesty is what has made Susan and Daniel's story together so perfect. She is 100%, look, I've been through this. I know exactly what I want. I'm not going to settle for anything. If you were the person for me, then you're going to be the person for me. And, and I don't need you to do anything that I can't do myself. I've been doing a lot of stuff on my own, and, and I, I admire that. Uh, I admire the strength in a woman who has uh, been through hell and back. I'm sitting here, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old, and... You know, I didn't think I was going to have those feelings again. And he's like, you know, older. He's lived his life where he's like, I never thought I'll find somebody that we just the way we are, you know? Me neither. And then here's this gentleman, like, all those years that I ever thought what a husband should be, he is, you know? And I can be myself and he can be himself and... And it's okay. Now, both Susan and Daniel are getting to share their second chance at life together and as a family with their now one-year-old daughter. You know, just the, just so much joy that, you know, my daughter brings, both of them. But, you know, just to have a baby, <laughs> you know, and watching, watching her grow up and, and actually see her clinging to me and, you know, looking for mama and daddy, it's just an amazing thing. She's so smart, you know, like, she's, oh my gosh, she is something else. This woman has just been amazing. And then to see her as a mom, you know, she is, she, she's beautiful inside and out. It's been, it's been wonderful. While their life in South Korea has turned out like they never expected and still remains a bit uncertain, their hopes and goals continue. I hope people take away that, you know, um, one incident, you know, does not make a person or you can't pass judgment because again um, you don't know what people have been through or what people are going through she is a a wonderful wonderful lady um, a terrific mom she she is strong she is dedicated she's determined uh, she's caring and um, you know although you know what happened to her happened to her and that you know it, it bought her, I think, where she needed to be. And it placed me in a place where I needed to be to meet her for us to actually have this happiness and to have this life. I'm going to try and do whatever I can as well on, on my side to, to you know, make sure that we can get her uh, back to where she belongs. Even when I was in prison, I remember having like bits and pieces of like flashes in my mind of like me being, like, for example, like, oh, I see myself in a car driving in the sunshine, wind blowing, you know, like green leaves blowing, you know, and, and then like, God, and I'd be doing that. And I'm like, wow, like, this is the moment like I, like I thought of, you know, like I'm in the shower in prison cell and think about like, you know, 
laying on a couch at a nice cool house somewhere like watching big tv and like i'm doing it now like this is the moment that i thought of that one day you know and i remember like watching basketball one day on my bunk you know headphones on and I, you know you hear that that uh, basketball shoes on the on the floor like you know like that rubber meeting the floor and i remember just hearing them in the background with the whistles and, and the announcers talking and then like i remember just like hearing my husband playing the video game you know basketball or watching basketball and i'm thinking this is the sound you know like i remember like hearing it and this is what i meant to hear again like and remember you know just different places that I would have flashes of, like I'm living it now. And now I have those flashes of other places. And I wonder in a couple of years that I'll look back and say, oh man, I'm sitting at the St. Louis Cardinal Stadium with my parents. And I remember in Korea, I was sitting there thinking like, am I ever gonna get there again? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so there's that hope. So many things have happened for me and come through, you know, so. Why not keep on hoping? On the next episode of Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America. The U.S. is one of the few countries that, uh, even though we export about 2,500 kids out of the U.S. for adoption into other countries, it's expected that those children get citizenship in those countries that they're exported to. But when the U.S. imports kids, they don't give them citizenship. Doesn't make sense. Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America was created on behalf of Focus Features and co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos. Executive producers are Kelly Gardner and Lisa Ammerman. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Consulting producer, Tim Schauer. Additional production help from Haley Mandelberg and Justin Washington, with special thanks to Christopher Larson and Anissa Druzito from Adoptee Advocacy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts to raise awareness about this crisis so more people can hear these unimaginable stories. Inspired by true events, the new film Blue Bayou shines an important light on the impact our immigration policies have on American families today. Watch Focus Features' new film, Blue Bayou, out now only in theaters. <laughs>